Steve Phillips. Steve is a national political leader, a civil rights lawyer, an author, and senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. His new book is entitled Brown is the New White, How a Demographic Revolution has Created a New American Majority. He spent the past 30 years working at the intersection of racial and economic justice and electoral politics. He's co-founder of PowerPack.org. They're a social justice organization dedicated to building the political power of the multiracial majority in America and which conducted the largest independent voter mobilization efforts that have backed such candidates as our president, Barack Obama, Cory Booker, and Kamala Harris here in California. Uh, we have uh, some uh, different articles that he has written, uh, one of which is a great piece for the nation that we're talking with you about here on the only true democracy in talk radio. More than a pleasure uh, to have our guest with us and, and good to have him join us, Steve Phillips. Steve, good afternoon and welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on. Um, Steve, you wrote a great piece for the nation entitled To Fix the Racial Wealth Gap, We Need Solutions That Sound radical. Um, are there any solutions that sound radical by any candidates? And I would imagine those candidates would come somewhere on the left uh, to uh, fix the racial wealth gap in America. I think the candidates are moving in the right direction, but they're not going far enough. And I really believe that since the composition of the electorate has changed so dramatically since the 1960s, where people of color have grown from 12% of the population to 38% of the population, that there is a more receptive electorate for a progressive left agenda addressing issues of justice and equality. But I think the candidates, they talk about inequality and income inequality. They haven't yet gotten to wealth inequality, which one of the things I talk about in my book is wealth inequality in general, but also the racial wealth gap that implicates the history and, and current public policies that maintain that inequality. Talk to us about the wealth gap for people that perceive it perhaps uh, the same as income inequality. So the income is how much money you make in a year. Uh, wealth gap has to do with how much money you have, how much assets that you have. So the average uh, white family has uh, in, uh, assets in the realm of $150,000. The average black family ha- and Latino families, their assets are about ten dollars or $12,000. And so that's the racial wealth gap that I'm talking about. And it is, in fact, the legacy of the history of the country, um, even as recently as the the GI Bill and its racially discriminatory implementation, where billions of dollars were moved to veterans coming back and their families, but people of color were excluded from participating in that. And, uh, we, you know, we have less than a minute. Before I ask you another question, let's take our break. That's our shortest segment in the program. Uh, once again, Steve Phillips is joining us in this hour, national political leader, civil rights lawyer, author, and senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. His new book, check it out, Brown is the New White, How a Demographic Revolution has Created a New American Majority. We're talking about fixing the racial wealth gap. He's telling us what that is. And we're, t- and we're also going to talk about the solutions, and s- perhaps those solutions need to be and need to sound radical. Are they realistic? We'll talk about that with our guest when we return. Ways for you to join us, 888-6-LESLIE, 888-653-7543. To call, tweet, follow me on Twitter at Leslie Marshall, follow Steve at Steve P. Tweets. Talk 
talking with author of Brown is the New White, How a Demographic Revolution has Created a New Majority. Also, he is a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, national political leader, civil rights lawyer, and author. Joining us, Steve Phillips. Steve, thank you for holding. Uh, welcome back. Thanks um, so much. We were talking about your piece for the nation entitled To Fix the Racial Wealth Gap. We need solutions that sound radical. Um, do progressives, do you feel, truly want to improve the conditions in underserved and underdeveloped communities and do they do they want to even more so an election year for political gain? Why doesn't this benefit them? Well, I think that people do want to address those issues, but they're not necessarily aware of the extent of the problems and the inequality. And then also I think that the progressive movement has been too long on the defensive on a lot of public policy issues, even things like immigration. We're like accepting the notion around what's, you know, who is uh, illegal and not illegal in a country that was stolen um, from its original inhabitants. Um, we accept this notion around uh, poverty and uh, and don't challenge the fact that there's been active governmental involvement in creating and maintaining um, poverty issues. So, and I think that their reluctance to take it on an election year is tied to what I call in the book the tyranny of the white swing voter. And there's so much fear that those swing voters will uh, vote against you or abandon you that therefore people have been unwilling to be as bold and full-throated as we really need to be. And that you can be now that we do have a majority of progressive whites and progressive people of color being the majority of all voters. Well, that's what I was going to ask you next. You must have read my mind, Steve. Uh, Being that the demographic of the voter, the face, literally uh, the changing uh, face of the voter, um, has come so much more so, especially in elections where we see such power coming out of people of color, whether it be Hispanic or African-American. Um, but let's focus on the African-American community. Um, perhaps people are you know, more apt to uh, look at or to address those issues, some would say, when you have an African-American running as uh, former President uh, Barack Obama was. But you know what? We're not seeing those people leave simply because there's not an African-American running um, on the left. Yes, there is on the right, Dr. Ben Carson, but focusing on the left, because this is more of a progressive issue, um, you know, we see that support continuing. And, you know, statistically right now, you know, for Hillary Rodham Clinton, at least in the African-American community, um, does this just show that, hey, this is a community that continues to grow, continues to be and will be a, a larger part and influence of the voter population? And therefore, at some point, left or right, regardless of the skin color of the candidate, these are not issues that can, can be ignored, you know, politically or otherwise. Exactly, in that Obama's election was significant not just because of the color of his skin, because of the history of this country, right? This is a country where much of the wealth was built by African Americans and held in slavery and captivity. This is a country which had explicitly whites-only uh, discriminatory policies up until the Civil Rights Movement of the 1960s. And so the what Obama's election represented was the assertion of a movement of people who had been previously marginalized and excluded into a larger position of political power. And so that movement continues those conditions that people are facing in terms of education and employment and housing continue to be challenges that have to be addressed by whatever candidate is running. What do you think is something, uh, what, what are bigger and bolder, bolder policy solutions that are not only required that we should be hearing more of out on the campaign trail? Well, one of the, the signature pieces that, you know, I, I was able to research under putting the, looking at the book is when you look at this issue around racial wealth, the, that, of the wealth inequality, the top 1% in the country 
holds $26 trillion of wealth. And that's people making $13 million uh, or have in the bank $13 million or more. And so if you instituted a wealth tax, not an income tax, but a tax on the money they have in the bank of 2%, that'd be $500 billion a year. Think tanks like Demos and others have said that you can end poverty for $250 billion. So we can end poverty in the country just by instituting a wealth tax on the top 1%. And they wouldn't even be taking any money from them. They should be making 10% a year on their money. And so a 2% tax just means they get rich a little bit, richer a little bit slower. And so it's that kind of uh, uh, policy and, and imagination that we need to hear from candidates for. Michelle Obama, as you quote in your piece on April 8, 2015, at the White House convening on creating opportunity for Native youth, said, poverty and violence didn't just randomly happen to this community. And, and she talks about that community. Uh, she talks about uh, these issues are the result of a long history of s- systematic discrimination and abuse, and, and she is speaking to uh, Native Americans, to these Native American youth. Um, this speech could be given regarding African Americans as well. This this piece of her speech, this soundbite, if you will, could be taken, and, and it could be applied to African Americans as well, correct? Absolutely. I mean, that, that, that's what it's important to look at, why groups are poor and actually why so much uh, so many whites are in the middle class is because of government policies and it's not an accident that so many native americans are poor the country was taken from them and they were driven out of their homes and and they're they're part of the country it's not an accident african americans are poor they were held in slavery for over uh, a couple hundred years and then another hundred years of legalized discrimination and jim crow and so that active government policies creating this level of inequality and poverty we have and it's going to take active government policies to redress it and not and to get past this around blaming people for being poor as if it's their own fault you define in your piece an electoral block made up of progressive people of color and also progressive whites so it's not just people of color but that would be 51 percent of all eligible voters why aren't we hearing more from people on the right about this as well well, you are hearing from people like uh, Ann Coulter, who's written a book, Adios America, uh, the, the Left Plan to Turn America into a Third World Hellhole. She actually, ironically enough, has done more of this analysis around the country's changing demographics than many of the Democratic and progressive leaders have. And so you're uh, correct that the first chapter of the book is 51% growing every day. And that's progressive people of color and progressive whites who are too often overlooked as a meaningful voting block. There are enough progressive whites now in this country, and there have always been progressive whites, that when they are aligned with the growing numbers of people of color, we can win and win on a progressive agenda without having to chase after the conservative swing voters. You know, I want want to ask you um, this question. Do you feel that when Senator Sanders was asked about reparations, that that's a conversation that should be had, uh, never would be had, and, and, and is insulting to African Americans? Or do you think it is fair to discuss, not just with Senator Sanders, with anybody, uh, going forward, there are 40 acres and a mule missing for every African American who's a descendant of a slave? Yes, absolutely. I mean, and uh, Tana Hissey Coates has written eloquently about this in The Atlantic, um, is that there there does need to be both an accounting as well as an active step um, measures, or really a whole campaign to uh, deal with 
the legacy of exploit, economic exploitation, which we continue to see the conditions and the results of manifesting themselves. And so I think it was right to ask Senator Sanders of that. I wish he had actually embraced it more. I mean, if he can run as a socialist and call for a political revolution, it shouldn't be too much further of a step to call for reparations, at least studying reparations. Uh, Congressman Conyers has introduced a bill every year just to create a commission to study it, and he can't even get co-sponsors for that bill. What about people that would say, you know, throwing money at this problem doesn't help a problem? Let's look at Native Americans, for example. Uh, land given, tax breaks given, um, or no taxation, casinos, yet huge alcoholism level, incredibly high compared to the rest of the nation, fetal alcohol sy- syndrome, um, you, you know, uh, suicide, uh, mental illness, depression, uh, the list goes on. There are a lot of problems in the African-American community that have been problems in the African-American community for, for decades, perhaps since African-Americans were brought here against their will and chains on boats as slaves. A check even truly 40 acres and a mule, that doesn't change some of the problems within this community that, you know, money does have the power to change certain things like better schools, right? Um, But money can't change necessarily fatherlessness, which is a problem in this country and even more so in African-American communities, Um, or um, drug use or being involved in the drug life because, you know, you don't have the opportunity that that people outside of the, quote, hood, if you will, have. And, of course, uh, the amount of incarceration, um, you know, per capita within the community. Uh, So I'm I'm curious, very interested, Steve, in, in your response to this because money helps but money obviously doesn't solve some of these systemic issues. Right. Well, I think that too often people confuse conditions with causes. And so there are a lot of conditions attached to being poor and attached to being exploited and attached to being marginalized and oppressed. I mean, there are studies showing that uh, in terms of hiring processes, that there are actual preferences and preferences against people with black-sounding names. And so there's an ongoing active even if it's implicit or unconscious, discrimination against African Americans, which creates these conditions that are, you know, these bad things that you actually um, ran down. Martin Luther King used to talk about that that ultimately in his last book, uh, uh, Where Do We Go From Here? He, in essence, says the best way to solve poverty, to address poverty, is to end poverty directly. He called for a national income. And so that's the type of thing that I'm talking about in my book is this national wealth tax that would generate two hundred, uh, that generate five hundred billion dollars a year, and if we were working on that scale, not small checks to deal with, you know, a, a little bit here and a little bit there, but taking people out of poverty and assuming that they are uh, respectable and respected people who can function in a society given legitimate chance, then we'll make a dramatic and qualitative change in our society. And. When you hear from people in the African-American community, what would you say is the number one concern? Because when you look at the numbers, like unemployment, for example, unemployment rate is low, not in the inner city, not in the African-American community, not among blacks in America. So is it, look, the school, is it just opportunity overall, whether it's educational opportunity, career opportunity, even opportunity to be a part of the political process when you see what some on the right have done with regard uh, to, you know, voting rights, 
Um, you know, it's 2016, but we may have come a long way, baby, but we're not all the way there yet, baby. Uh, and then, and then, of course, when we look the, at the redistricting or how difficult it can be for some people who are in the inner city um, to be able to vote, how there's definitely been a movement by the right to uh, silence, if you will, voters, uh, specifically voters of color. Uh, yeah, I think that, that that that's true, and I think that I would say some of the top issues that people uh, relate to are the core bread and butter issues around um, jobs and education in schools. And again, too much of the political dialogue is constrained by fears around how the swing voter will respond to it. And so, what I'm calling for is more aggressive, bold public policy ideas. Let's make sure every school in the country is a high-quality school that is properly resourced and properly staffed with fully trained teachers and enough teachers. And again, let's do that by by implementing a wealth tax on the top 1%. Ideas like that are not as much in the political dialogue as they need to be, but they could be if voters would, if the candidates would recognize that there is the mathematical support for that in the electorate that they have not previously appreciated. So that's what I'm trying to do with this book is really inspire people to look more boldly at the public policy agenda. Now, in addition to inspiring people to look more boldly at uh, the public policy agenda, what else can people do? Because this isn't something that just African Americans or just people of color care about in America. Obviously, we know that by polls, and we also see that by voting patterns that have changed uh, states that were red turning purple and purple turning blue. Right. So I think the, the my greatest sense of urgency is that the progressive movement is not going to seize the moment and build upon the movement that got Obama elected, that too many people see that that was a one-off and that we can't replicate that kind of turnout, so therefore we have to keep chasing the more conservative white swing voters, rather than moving massive amounts of money into the communities of color, which are growing and which comprise the cornerstones of this new American majority. So people should be holding these campaigns accountable. Progressives are going to spend three billion dollars on this election cycle. It's been $2.7 billion in 2012. 46% of the voters are people of color. So half of that money should be going into partnering with churches and community-based organizations and local community leaders. And so you can't, anybody can look at the campaign filing reports, see how they're actually doing, hold people accountable through Twitter and through social media to push these campaigns, help them and harass them to do the right thing. Okay, and we just have a few uh, seconds left. What's the one last thing you'd like to leave our listeners with today, Steve? Well, that they will join me in this campaign crusade to build on the advances of the civil rights movement, the progressive movement that got Obama elected, helped us make major changes during Obama's era, and continue to do that by strengthening and mobilizing candidates, uh, the communities of color and the progressive white community, to build a better society. We are so uh, grateful for you taking the time. I know you're very busy with all that's on your plate. Uh, Thank you. Once again, folks, our guest this afternoon and this hour that you've just been listening to is Steve Phillips. Steve's a national political leader, a civil rights lawyer, an author, and senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. His new book, Brown is the New White, How a Demographic Revolution Has Created a New American Majority. Go to Amazon and everywhere else to pick it up. The website for his book is brownisthenewwhite.com. The website for the nation to read his piece is thenation.com. And please follow Steve on Twitter as well, at Steve P. Tweets. That's P as in Peter. Tweets, T-W-E-E-T-S. Steve, S-T-E-V-E, 